This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book about women in faith is coming out this summer, and I want you to be the first to get all the details about it. Enjoy the show. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Worth Your Time podcast. I'm Erica, and today I'm speaking with Amanda Opelt. Thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Hey, Erica. It's really nice to be on with you. Thanks. Did I say your last name right? You did. I'm so impressed. Yeah. People think it's Irish, like, Oh, like with an apostrophe, but it's, it's actually a German. I just decided to go for it. I'm glad it worked out. (laughs) It's so confident. Like, yeah, I was like, wow, maybe she like did a research or what? I could. Yeah, I should (laughs) have. I'm not that advanced. Um, well, Amanda, I, you caught my attention, uh, because of a book that you're writing and just sort of, I think we have a lot of you know, kind of people in common in the world of social media and the Christian world and things like that. But tell us a little bit about who you are and about your upcoming book that's coming out. Sure. Um, yeah, so I live here in Boone, North Carolina, a small town in Southern Appalachia. I was raised in East Tennessee, um, lived in different parts of the world for a while, but really feel kind of at home in the mountains and um, married to a great guy, uh, Tim, and we have two little, little girls, uh, three and one. So, uh, I'm so appreciative of all the great work you put out there, Erica, and just, um, yeah, being invested in your family and while investing in the church and in your own faith and in your creativity and just the balance that requires. So, um, I spent the last 15 years working, um, kind of in, in either a social work setting or the humanitarian aid sector. And so just in the last year, have transitioned over to uh, writing um, so that I can, you know, have a little more flexibility to be with my girls and kind of explore my creative work a little bit more intentionally. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, still, it, man, feels like it's moving <laughs> kind of fast. Uh, about a, a year ago, I signed a contract for my first book. And, um, and it's coming out in July, I think it's July 19th, uh, this summer. And the book is called, um, a hole in the world, uh, finding hope through rituals of grief and healing. And, uh, it's, it's based on a quote by the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. And the quote is when you died, you left a hole in the world that I kept circling around during the day and falling into at night. And essentially it's a book about, It's a book about grief and it's a book about um, the way generations past have embraced communal rituals to help them process their losses and um, process their sorrow and how I felt 
kind of a lack of ritual in my life. When I walked through a season of significant grief, a, a series of losses, and just didn't didn't really know how to process it, didn't know what to do with my emotions, didn't know how to interact with people when I was grieving, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And um, I just kind of became um, compelled by kind of how how generations past and history have ha- handled grief. You know how your phone, you know how like the algorithm just knows what's going on in your life? Like your yes. phone listens to you or whatever. I, yeah. I guess my phone knew I was grieving because somewhere on my newsfeed or Facebook feed, it, it popped up um, an article about strange grief rituals from the past. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You know, so I click on it and it was like, it, it, that started me on a journey. Mm-hmm. And so I kept Googling things and checking out books from the library and just reading and reading and reading. And then I began journaling about it. And, and that's kind of how, that's kind of how the book came to be, I guess. Well, I love that sort of like sidestep into your creative process, just because uh, I, I think we all know that feeling of you get like this nugget of an idea and then yeah. I'm like, wait, this could like be something more than this thought in my head. Yes. Um, yeah. And so that's really cool. Other than just me, you know? Yeah. Like- yeah. And so writing about grief, like I can imagine that that is really hard, <laughs> especially writing about your own grief because you have to go back to that place. You have to go back to those like awful moments. So how did you decide you wanted to do that? And how was it actually processing it like that? Right. That's a good question. And I, I still wonder sometimes if it was the right thing to do, to be honest with you, because I, you know, I, at least I, I began kind of sketching out my thoughts pretty soon in the immediate aftermath of, you know, the loss of my grandmother, three miscarriages and, and really culminating in the very sudden death of my, my sister who was young, healthy, had two small children, just one of those catastrophic life events Mm -hmm. for me and my whole family. And so I, um, I still, I still wonder sometimes, should I have given it time? Should I have allowed myself the space to grow in wisdom a bit more as it relates to grief before I began writing? Um, But at the same time, like my hope is that the words are raw and honest enough that they might meet someone else who's still in that same place of processing. Uh, And, and yeah, it is, in some ways it it is, it was a hard decision because it's like, okay, I'm going to write a book about grief, but that means I'm going to be talking about grief for a long time. It means I'm mm-hmm. going to be having people share with me their own grief stories. And am I ready to hold those, those stories with people? Um, and ultimately I just decided it was worth it. And, um, you know, another thing that I discovered while writing the book, it wasn't just discovering this amazing, fascinating history of healthy grieving rituals, I discovered a lot about what the Bible has to say about sorrow and loss and anxiety and anger and all those feelings that come with grief. I I discovered a lot of that too. And things that just weren't talked about maybe as openly 
in the church as I think they should have been. And and so I felt like I was kind of rediscovering the Bible in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I felt really excited about wanting to share that too. So I, I, I just decided it was kind of worth the risk. And there are some days where I think this is a, this is a bad idea, (laughs) but most (laughs) days I'm just, I am really grateful for the opportunity to do it. I'm grateful that anyone would want to have a conversation with me. I'm like the the fact that you want to have a conversation with me about this is, is an honor and an excitement for me. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's interesting what you say about like rediscovering the Bible, because I think there's, you know, grief being one of the things like the way the Bible is, you know, it's like a living word. And so there's always new things that we can glean from it, depending on sort of like the angle that we're coming from. Right. Right. So it's interesting to, you know, I'm sure you read lots of the Bible before that, but to come to it in this state, it's almost like God can like, like he like tilts the scripture or, you know, whatever he gives you this new vision of what he's saying to apply to your life as it is now. So that's a really interesting thing. I was also going to ask you this um, with your sister, who is Rachel Held Evans, who very well-known writer, um, you know, that's, you were grieving, of course, your personal grief, but then so many other people were grieving around you um, because it was such a shock. It was like a national news story. And so how was it to, I guess, grieve personally while like all these other people were also grieving, but like in a less personal way? Yeah. That's a great question. And I've thought a lot about it because it's, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. I'll say, I'll say this by and large, for the most part, I am so grateful for the love and the kindness and the generosity of Rachel's readers um, the people who loved her the way they loved us well from a distance, even though we didn't know them. Um, you know, they we got hundreds of cards in the mail and I read every single one of them. It, it took me a long time. I couldn't do it right away. I just, every sympathy card you open is a reminder that she's mm-hmm. really gone, that this is real, this is really happening. But um, about a year after she died, I started reading through the cards and and people were just so, I think what, what was beautiful to me is that people, people spoke of their own grief, but they were always so generous to elevate our grief more than their own, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and recognize that we were grieving. We weren't grieving Rachel Held Evans, the New York times bestselling author. Right. We were grieving Rach, my sister, you know, the, the person I grew up with, the person I plan to grow old with the, the mother of my niece and nephew. Um, and and in some ways, it's like, you know, I think a lot of people, when they lose a loved one, they think, man, I wish the world just knew. I wish the whole world could know what a wonderful person she was. And we have this incredible blessing of knowing that so many people knew how beautiful and brilliant and creative and generous she was. And, you know, my brother-in-law likes to say there are people that are not even born yet that will read her work and be blessed by her work. And so that's a huge privilege and a huge blessing. You know, at the same time, you know, there's, there's complexities that come with that and just kind of feeling like, I don't know, sometimes we can think of grief as a, a little bit of a pie in some ways. It's like, I need this piece of the pie. Like, like we can kind of hoard our grief in mm-hmm. some ways but there's enough there there's enough space in the world for us all to grieve together if that makes sense like someone else's grief doesn't diminish my doesn't, own yeah, it doesn't have a box it doesn't have 
constraints. <laughs> right, exactly. But there are certainly moments where I'll see someone say like, I miss her voice on Twitter. And I'm like, oh man, I wish that was all I missed. I wish, mm-hmm. I wish I was just missing her voice on Twitter. And instead it's like, I'm missing her at, at Christmas. I'm missing her mm-hmm. when I have good news and I can't share her. I missed her at the birth of my daughter who she will never know, you know? And so I think that's there's complex feelings there, but for the most part, it's been such a blessing to be supported and loved by the people that, that loved her. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, One of the other things that you talk about is going through miscarriages. And I want to ask a little bit about that just because so many women know what it's like to go through that experience. I mean, it's so, so common. And I, I guess what I want to ask is just, you know, it's it's a weird thing because so many times it's hidden and nobody even knows that it's happened because a lot of right. times people don't even talk about their pregnancies until second trimester. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, you know, some people name them, some people don't, and it's just kind of this weird space. And so- right. I, I do you think that we could do, I think as a society, we could do a better job supporting women through these things. Yeah. Um, but I guess I'm not sure what I'm asking, but what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's even, you know, I think part of the reason it may be taboo in some ways is like, there's kind of this, the culture's divided a little bit on personhood and like yes. when, yeah. when is a life a life and when is it viable? And, and, but you really don't want to get into all that when you're in the right. midst of leaving a devastated, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're like, I'm not in yeah, abortion politics right now. We're not talking politics right now. I'm, I'm crushed. My, my, I lost my baby, you know, mm-hmm. and that a lot of what grief is, is grieving a, a hoped for future that you never, that you never mm-hmm. reach. And I, you know, I think about when you lose, when you lose a loved one, like when I lost my grandmother or my sister is like, you have this whole history with the person that you're, you're grieving and and you, you knew them and you can, it's, it's more tangible, but with a pregnancy loss, it's what it is. It's the hope of a future with someone you don't even know. You, you don't, it's like, you don't even know who it is that you're grieving. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think it, it was kind of, and yeah, just, I'll, I'll be just more, I'll be transparent about kind of what my experience was like. You know, I, I lost my, my first baby in a, um, it was a silent miscarriage. So, you know, you go in for a routine ultrasound, there's no heartbeat, you know? So I have, I go back like five days in a row and have them check. You know what I mean? I'm like, just make sure, make sure, make sure. And uh-huh. even my untrained eye could see on the ultrasound and I knew in my gut, but that was a strange experience to be like, I'm still pregnant, but I'm not pregnant. It's like you, there's this feeling of kind of your body betraying you a little bit, like you can't trust your body. And then pregnancies from there on out are always going to be pretty riddled with anxiety because you don't know if your body's going to do this thing. You know, they say pregnancy and childbirth is the most natural thing in the world. And it's like, well, why didn't it work for me? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's part of the, the confusion of it is you, you, it's, it's a death that happens within your body. It's, it's, grieving someone you never knew. Um, and you know, I, in all my study of rituals, I, I had a hard time finding, um, rituals about pregnancy loss. It's like, yes, we've not known what to do about this. Um, I wrote an article a couple years ago about like, 
it was more about late term loss and stillbirth, but I agree. Like I was trying to find that information just for the article and there was just very little out there. Yeah. Right. Right. And I, yeah, I, one thing I'll, I'll say, I don't know if this will quite answer your question, but one thing that really helped me is I'm not sure if you're familiar with the old Testament scholar, John Walton, he writes kind of about the context of in which Genesis was written, the question Mm -hmm. that people would have been asking and, you know, yeah, some of that ancient Near Eastern thought that influenced the writing of the Old Testament. And he talks about how in the curse of Genesis 3, when God says, um, you know, that you'll experience much pain and childbearing, um, you know, and with great pain, you know, you'll, you'll bring forth children. One of the words that's used for that term childbearing, it's not just labor and delivery. It's actual, the word actually means the whole process of reproduction Mm. (laughs) will be painful for you. And for some reason, I think that helped me to to know that, that like, okay, even God recognizes this, that it's not just that moment of, because to me, by the time I got to labor and delivery, I was so glad that my baby had made it that far that I was like, this is awesome. I don't even care about the pain. I'm just so happy we've made it this far. Yeah. yeah. But God actually speaks to the pain of the whole process of like hoping for a baby, trying for a baby, infertility, pregnancy loss, the actual birth, and then the raising of children. There's something kind of holistic about that term that's used in Genesis three. So I don't know that that for some reason helped me and felt made me feel seen by God in, in all of it. And that was enough for me. I was like, yeah. if society doesn't see me, but I feel like God sees me, then maybe I'll be okay. Yeah. I've never heard that before. I do feel like that could be helpful to people maybe that yeah. are listening. Um, it makes me think of, you know, I, when I was pregnant the first time I was like, just, I didn't even have a reason to be terrified, but I was like the whole first really? trimester. I was just every day. So I was like, I just want to, can I go in like every day and check? You know, I didn't yeah, totally hundred percent. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's, that's how I felt. And then once I got to second trimester, I thought I would feel better, but I didn't, <laughs> I was like still scared. And, yeah. you know, so you get all the way through and then I have my baby. And then I was like, Oh, like your fear doesn't actually end. <laughs> like no. I had really bad postpartum anxiety with my first, um, And so, you know, that of course dissipated, but I was like, oh, this is like your whole, like your whole world has changed. Like you cannot look at the world the same way. Like everything is a little scarier. Everything is, I don't know. It's like, so many people can explain motherhood and, you know, maybe it sounds cliche, but it's true. It's just, it's so true how there is a hardship or a, uh, it's almost like the love, you love them so much that- it, it is painful almost sometimes that that's so well articulated Erica. Cause it, yeah, it is with like, with great love comes great costs. Like no great love comes without some cost, I think. And that's, I've learned that in grief, you know, um, where there's great love, there will be great grief. You know, this is how this ends when there's love, somebody is going to die. Like we're all mortal, you yeah. know, and you, yeah, it's true about motherhood is that with motherhood comes kind of a loss of autonomy. Like you feel like part of your body is living outside of you mm-hmm. and doing it without, you know, outside of your control in so many ways. And that, that, that you just have to learn to kind of live, like you go to bed with that fear every night and you wake up with that fear every night. And 
but that's because your love for them is great. It's a, it's an indication of how strong the love is and Mm -hmm. it's really beautiful and awful at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, don't get me started. Well, I want to ask you about a couple other things. So you were a humanitarian aid worker. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and in that, you know, that's a, there's a different kind of grief that you're going to walk through there because it's not yours necessarily, but you're seeing it in the lives of other people. So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah. I always, I always feel a little bit like I need to make a disclaimer that I'm not, I wasn't, I wasn't an actual aid worker. I guess I was, I worked for a humanitarian aid organization. I was a staff care chaplain, essentially. Like I kind of helped manage staff care programs for uh, folks that lived and worked overseas doing humanitarian aid work. And Um, and so in some ways it was like, yeah, I went to a lot of those places and saw a lot of those, a lot of those tragedies and and have been to, you know, areas of famine and war and things like that. Um, saw them myself, but also kind of helped carry the stories of, of the aid workers that were living there day in and day out Mm -hmm. and kind of wrestling with what they were seeing. And so, yeah, that concept of secondary trauma of, um, you know, you bear witness to the trauma of others. And, and so, um, how do you, how do you process that? How do you, how do you live with that? It's kind of a, it's an interesting, it was an interesting life to live for about 10 years to where you, you fly into, you know, the, you know, a war zone or a place where a hurricane has completely devastated everything and you throw your heart and soul into the work for two weeks. And then, then you get on a plane and you come back and it's yeah. like, you go to a Christmas party yeah. or you go, and you have you go to the grocery store and you have that. So this kind of um, these, these two worlds uh, kind of colliding and, and figuring out how to, how to, how to hold those two places in, in your brain space. My dad talks about the verse. Uh, I'm going to show uh, this would not, this does not do my Awana girl's heart. Good. I cannot remember the reference. Um, <laughs> it's Philippians, right? I've learned the secret of living in plenty and in want. Mm. And um, he says, most people think that the real kind of power of that verse is like, Oh, I've learned how to live in want. I've learned how to live in times of suffering and in need. And I've learned how to be happy. He said, I think aid workers need to learn the secret of living in plenty too. How, mm. how do I enjoy when I've been exposed to such great loss, how can I be thankful for and savor and enjoy the blessings that, that I'm privileged to have? And, um, it, it's, it's tough work, you know, and I, again, I, I'm, wasn't really one of them. I feel like I supported aid workers, but when all the rest of us are sitting at home thinking someone should do something. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.com.
org. About Ukraine or someone should do something about, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, or, you know, those, those folks are going in there and risking their lives to help. And it is heavy burdens they carry for the rest of their yeah. lives. Yeah. So. Yeah. I am in awe of people that do that for their life's work. Uh, what are some of, where are some of the countries that you were at? Just curious. I spent some time um, on my on my own, kind of um, right after college in um, in India, and worked with some local uh, uh, Indian organizations. They are doing in, in, teaching English as a second language, helping them with some fundraising, and that was really kind of where I cut my teeth a little bit, like cross culturally. Like it was like full immersion, you know, living with Indian families and experiencing the Indian church. It was um, life-changing um, for me. And then um, just some of the places where uh, our organization worked that I've been in the last few years, um, you know, went to Iraq several times, um, Democratic Republic of Congo. I've been there. <laughs> oh yeah. What part have you been to? Um, great. Now I'm going to forget the name of the city. I don't Is know. Which part of the country was it in? I, I want to say it was like Easter, or like mid Eastern, maybe. Yeah, that's kind of where a lot of a lot of aid organizations. Wait, Vera is that a city? That sounds right. <laughs> I, it was a while ago. I obviously showing our geographic ignorance. Uh, yeah, there's a big chunk of the eastern part of the country um, where there's still a lot of conflict and movement. Of, of yeah, it was definitely a. There's a lot always going on there. Right. Yeah. I think they, they counted something like 200 militia groups in that area still operating. Mm-hmm. Um, got to spend a lot of, quite a bit of time in Liberia as well. And um, uh, I, the region I was mostly responsible for was our staff working in Africa. Uh, and so got to go visit several countries uh, there. South Sudan um, spent a little bit of time there and, um, so I, yeah, I, I've lost count and it was great. Like it, it was a, it was a really incredible experience. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. And also I think it's the kind of work you do for a season and, and yeah. then take a break and hand it over to younger, more energetic. I feel like you probably have so many things you could write about. Like that's another book. <laughs> that's the next one. <laughs> well, I will say that it, it, I, 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 it was kind of a, tricky because I thought when my, when I first started to experience my own personal losses, I was like, I'm prepared for this because I have borne witness to other people suffering. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a trauma care practitioner in some ways. It's like, I know how to do like psychological first aid and all this stuff. So I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. And then I woke up the next morning and I was like, it's different when it's your own life, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just, and it, it made me have more respect for the people who I, who I encountered that had, you know, lost their homes or lost family members in war or conflict. And it just quadrupled by a million times. I mean, you know, my respect for them because it, it just kind of, um, it made them even more human to me in some ways, you know, they went in my mind, it's like, it's easy to see the people you serve as just beneficial. They're beneficiaries, they're beneficiaries and I'm serving. And, and it, it's like, Oh, this is, this is a little bit of what they were feeling. And it just, yeah, it changed how I view the work in a lot of ways when I kind of experienced my own crisis, you know. Would you say, um, and I'll probably read this once I read the book, but how was your faith like shaken or, 
you know, through this, was it shaken? What was going on with your faith and your relationship with God during all of this loss? So I would say at first I was really disappointed in my faith. Um, And then that changed over time. But the thing that disappointed me was I thought that if I did all the right things, if I had my theology of suffering all systematized and squared away, and if I was praying for peace and praying for comfort, and I had other people praying for peace and praying for comfort, and I was reading all the Christian grief books and all that stuff, that I thought that I would feel better, if that makes sense. Like, I thought the uncomfortableness of the grief would somehow be alleviated. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't. And I was like, God, what is this like peace that passes all understanding? Where is that? What's it like? I, you know, where, where is that? And, um, and I think what I had to learn is that the comfort isn't there's, you know, the, 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 um, scripture passage that says we'll comfort one another with the comfort we've been given. That word for comfort is kind of a, an, an off translation in the English, it, it more means it's not so much palliative. Like we think comfort as being like, I will feel better. The, right. My emotional experience will improve, but the word really means more to fortify, to strengthen, which is different, you know, um, it, it's not. And so I, that, that I think is what I learned is that, okay, God's not going to necessarily make me feel better. This is going to hurt. This is going to be emotionally difficult, emotionally uncomfortable for a long time. But what he did do is fortify me and somehow gave me the strength to bear it. And not just the strength. I, I, over time, I saw him grow me in, in wisdom. I felt, I felt a very powerful reality of him leading me and nudging me towards like, you need to speak to this person. They're going to offer you some wisdom. Mm-hmm. You need to do this right now because this is going to be something that's going to be helpful to you. Things that I, I couldn't have really come up with on my own. I felt like God was, I, and the image I have is him just kind of pushing me forward with his hand. And that, that felt very, very real. Um, experientially, it's one of the most real um, encounters I feel like I've had with God, but it wasn't emotionally comforting to be completely mm-hmm. honest with. And maybe other people do experience that. Like maybe this was just something I had to walk through, but um, I think I'm just learning that we might have, we often have this idea that our Christianity might not give us, you know, prosperity and wealth or prosperity and health, but it is going to give us emotional prosperity is like this emotional prosperity gospel. Like my faith's going to make me feel better. It's going to, I'll be happy. I'll be comforted. Yeah. That's a, really good point. (laughs) And and we just, I just learned, no, you don't. Life is hard. The world is, is cruel and life is hard and God will fortify you to bear up under it. You know, yeah, I think how my faith evolved through all of it. Yeah. That's, that's such a good word there about emotional prosperity. Um, Okay. So I want to ask you about some of these rituals that you found in other cultures, because I feel like we don't really have those here. You know, we have yeah. funerals and stuff, but we don't yeah. like, you know, have some of these things that you've probably researched. So tell me about some of those interesting things you found and why you think those rituals are actually 
com- to go back to the word comfort, comforting yeah. in yeah. tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it might help to say, I think the reason we've lost a lot of these rituals is, um, you know, we, we used to care for the sick and the dying at home mm-hmm. and, you know, like in the 1870s, there were like 200 hospitals in this country. And, you know, in 50 years, like by, you know, the 1940s or 50s, there there were only there were there were 6,000. So it's like we we went from like we do care for the dying at home. We outsource it to hospitals. And while the hospital industry was growing, the funeral industry was growing as well. And so it used to be that when someone would die, they would die at home neighbors, friends would prepare the body for burial. They would carry the body to burial. They would bury the, the, the family member in the church, in the churchyard where they went to church with their, you know, with their pastor, with their rector. And, and so now we've gotten to this point where we've outsourced a lot of these practices around death and dying to hospitals, to funeral directors, to undertakers. And so I think when you're caring for death in your own space of living, it's not in this sanitized setting of the hospital. Yeah. You have to have rituals to help you process it, you know? Right. And and obviously cultures kind of amalgating now and you have, you know, we're, cultures being diluted. Um, a lot of rituals found their origin in some superstitions. And so the more kind of scientifically minded we get, we lose some of those superstitions. So we've lost the rituals, but the reason why I think these rituals are so important. So, so the one I'll just tell you about the one that really attracted my attention first is Irish keening. So keening is this practice of, you know, someone dies, they die at home and the, the tradition is to stay up all night with the body, um, as you know, kind of holding vigil over the body and all of the neighbors and the whole community would come into the home where the body was and sit and wait through the night with the body. And while this was going on, um, women would come and lead the whole community in a time of wailing, like crying, screaming, singing. And these, these women, they were called um, Bain Quinta in the original language, but it means the lead keener or the lead crier. And they actually served as midwives in the community as well. So they kind of ushered people into the world and ushered people out. And so the women would come and they would just start moaning and then other, everyone would join in in the moaning. And sometimes they would sing songs like words as tribute to the the person that died, but they were never recorded or written down because they were meant to be improvised songs in tribute to the person that died. And it just gave everyone in the room permission to just fall apart, to completely Mm -hmm. fall apart, which we don't really do publicly now. Like if I were to just completely lose it at a funeral, people would say she's not okay. Whereas I think in Irish culture, you know, in previous centuries, they would say what you're not okay if you're not wailing. Like it's not okay to not wail. Totally appropriate to be wailing right now. And so it was just this communal release where we give ourselves permission to be vulnerable and authentic and process together. Um, and, and so, you know, and then they would stay up all night, they'd wail, and and then they the, the keeners would ride with the body to the funeral, you know, to the burial until they were actually buried. And so, you know, that that was kind of an example of a ritual. I thought, man how helpful and therapeutic was that experience, you know, for people? And and why don't we do that now? There are other traditions about, you know, just, um, you know, the way people would wash the body or the way that people would um, dress the body that we don't really have now because we outsource that to somebody right. else. 
you know, some other, I looked at some Jewish traditions. I have a friend named Shelly who's Jewish and grew up in Israel and told me about some of their traditions, um, sitting Shiva, uh, which is where, you know, people come for seven days after the death of a loved one, they, they will come and visit the, the grieving family for seven days and just be with you. They'll take care of all of your needs. And there's no expectations that the mourning family host people just come and visit and comfort and share stories and, and sweep their floor and <laughs> clean their bathroom and just take care of everything. And so instead of squeezing it into a two hour visitation, like we do now, it's kind of spread out over the seven day period. Um, yeah. So things like that, that just really, um, uh, yeah, said kind of told me that we, what we've done is truncate the grieving process as, as much as we can and said, mm-hmm. let's quick do the visitation, quick do the funeral, expect people to get back to normal. And I think that the DSM says that if you're still having kind of a, a strong emotional reaction to grief at like six weeks, it's pathologized at that point. It's, it's, it's like, well, you, now you have a, a mental health disorder, you know, mm-hmm. like w- anyone who's grieved knows that the grieving process can take a lifetime, you know, and there's nothing wrong with you. You, you, you know, it's just, that's just a normal reaction to death. Um, yeah. Well, I think, yeah. And I think sometimes it's hard for people to like, believe that something like the ritual, the Irish ritual, or even the Shiva, um, oh, is that really going to help? Like, you know, yeah. you don't really think it's going to, but if you don't try it, you don't know. And so we don't know what we've lost by like what, like you say, truncating the death process, which is so true. I had never, I'd never thought about the outsourcing thing about how it's all hospitals and funeral directors and, you know, make the call, do the thing. Um, And, you know, I don't know what that does to us, like as people that, you know, or or what it does to the grief process. Um, How does that affect it long-term? Did you, did you analyze that? Well, I think the reason it seemed powerful to me is that I think that so like when, when you've had this kind of disorienting experience of losing someone, you know, you're supposed to process, everyone's like, you need to process your grief or you need to do the grief work. That's a term that Freud gave us, but he never really, I don't think he explained well what grief work, (laughs) at least not for the layman. I've tried to understand it. You're like, okay, what, what, what do I need to do? What am I supposed to be doing to process this? And what I love about a ritual, it's the same thing I love about liturgy and worship. When you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. Maybe your faith is floundering. You know, we, we've individualized faith so much in this culture and we've individualized grief. It's, it, it's mm-hmm. people alone in their grief. They need to grieve privately. And, and I understand where some of that comes from. But we weren't meant to do faith in isolation. We weren't meant to grieve in isolation. And what a ritual gives you is it's almost like I've heard it described as an empty vessel that you can kind of put whatever it is that you need into it. It walks you through kind of the physical experience of processing grief. So, you know, tolling a bell, for example, it's a ritual I write about. It's like when someone dies, they used to toll the bell for the number of times that, you know, or they, they, they'd ring, you know, one ring for every year that the person was alive. And it just, it called the whole community together to know that someone had died or another um, ritual I write about is um, telling the bees. I don't know if you've heard of telling the bees, but it was this idea that if, if someone in the household died and they had beehives, 
that you had to go and put the bees in mourning. <laughs> so you had to drape, drape black cloth over the beehives and tell the bees that someone had died or else the superstition was that the bee would fly away. The bees would fly away or the bees would die. My husband's a beekeeper. So I was really oh, interested wow. yeah, in That's that cool. ritual. But it, it kind of just gives you a list of things to do that kind of roots you in the reality of what's happened. Um, and it also gives, it gives the community around you a, a, a script, a list of things to do. It's like someone's died. What are we supposed to do? Well, yeah. we're going to pull the bell. We're going to tell the bees. We're going to cover the mirrors. We're going to bake. I did a lot about, I wrote a lot about different funeral foods. These are the foods we're going to cook. These are the foods we're going to eat. We're going to visit the the grieving family. We're going to say these things. We're going to do these things. We're going to wail together. Um, I write about funeral games. Um, there are lots of traditions that have games that people would play at funerals as kind of an emotional release. So just instead of just sitting around and thinking, what am I supposed to do now? You're actually kind of given a to-do list, yeah. which to me, roots you in your body. It I gets the involved in the same way that liturgy, when you show up at church and you're like, I'm not feeling it, God. It's like, here's a time-tested script that generations have used phrases and words and songs that they've used to glorify God. Take that and apply that. And, and until your, your body kind of catches up with your heart, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I just found that to be really helpful. So now I've started, I mean, you can't really, some of these rituals you can't resurrect because they're yeah. a little strange. You know, like I'm not, I'm probably not going to go tell our bees what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've recognized the importance of going going to the graveside of my grandmother, of my sister, of recognizing the days that I lost my babies and, and finding some way to do that and, and bring people along with me to do those things. Um, and I've found it actually helps. It helps. You know, yeah. it, it, it roots you in the reality of what's happened and, and honors your grief and makes space for it. You know, that makes so much sense. Um and, you know, I will just say that I think about like potential grief a lot um, because I have lived this life where I haven't had to do it very much. Like, you know, I, I've had, you know, two very close to me grandmothers die, but not a parent, not a sibling, not a friend, um, nothing with my kids. And so I think having this information because eventually there's going to be something, you know, for everybody. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I pray about it a lot. Cause I'm like, okay, like, I don't really know how I would respond, you know, if something happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. But knowing that kind of a thing is good. And also just, I guess, just believing that God's going to provide what you need when you need it. I think that's so true. And you, I mean, I wish that is my one hope I have for the book is that it would maybe prepare people who haven't grieved because it's you're super normal, Erica. Like it's really normal in this day and age for people to, you know, some people get well into their thirties and forties before they ever even go to a funeral. Yeah. I think that's another reason we've lost a lot of our rituals. That's, true. that's weird. That feels uncommon, even though it is the most common thing. It's kind of like childbirth, right? It's yeah. like, when you do it, you're like, this is a miracle yeah. of, of feet of human existence. They should write about me for in this <laughs> book for centuries. What I just did. It's like, but it's also, it's like, well, everybody was born. It's like the most yeah. uncommon common thing. And so I think 
but I think that's another reason we've lost our rituals is because, you know, childhood mortality used to be like 50%. That's true. That's true. And so kids were exposed to death. It was happening in the home. It like death was just part of life. And now it it's like it we're it's seen as abnormal when it happens. And it's that's like true. That's not. So interesting. So, I never thought about that. Yeah, I just wish that we did more preparation for grief because then when it does happen, it's not just like, oh, I'm devastated to lose this person. There's this sense in which you've been violated that I'm not sure people in the past have felt because they were so they expected it to happen. Whereas for me, I'm like, how dare you, God? How dare you let yeah. someone? that's not supposed to happen. Right. Um, and I, I just wish that we would educate ourselves, maybe even within the church family context to say, this is what it means to mourn, to grieve. This could happen to you at any time. Life is still super precarious. If nothing else, COVID showed us that, that you, you never know what's going to happen. And, and here are some things that you can do to prepare. You're never fully prepared for it, but there are ways that you can kind of mentally, um, I guess, equip, equip yeah. ourselves spiritually, communally. For yeah, things. definitely. I mean, I, I think that is one reason, like for someone that hasn't been through it to read a book like yours, um, because it's certain to come for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So you, you mentioned church family and I do want to touch on that because that's really important in my work. And um, I yeah. was, I told you, I wanted to ask you about your Twitter thread the other day where you had asked people like to tell you about a pastor that have been influential in their life. And I just, I found the question so refreshing in and of itself because, you know, here we are, we, you know, we hear about these big names that are like fallen. Like it was just the Hillsong guy right now is the one. I don't know if you yeah. know that, but um, you hear these big leaders. And, and when that happens, when you see, it, it's like all of a sudden, like this, the reputation of the church is like, you feel like it's on the line or everyone is judging Christianity based on these people. And I am always in my head, like they're just like visible, but there are so many wonderful people out there that you're never going to know their name. that are just doing diligent, faithful work within the local church where they are. And so I never want to not acknowledge the sin that is in these places, but I also want to really <laughs> lift up those that are doing the good work. So, um, and then that thread was so great. All the answers were so great. So, so what made you ask that? Well, I mean, I don't know that I could add any more to what you just said so well. Um, yeah. I mean, so to, let's be clear, failure within the church and failure among the people of God is nothing new. We shouldn't <laughs> be, I mean, the whole Bible is full of heroes who failed. There's like not a one of them that, that came out looking good, per, you know, <laughs> so true. Perfect, you know, um, and so the great thing about Twitter, social media is like, we're actually able to expose some of these abuses and hold people to account. So I, I don't, I don't, I never want to say that that's, that's fully a bad thing. It, it's a really, really good thing. And yet for some reason, we're always drawn to these kind of salacious accounts of you know, utter failure on the part of religious leaders. And, and, and while that is happening and, and, you know, and we need to pay attention to it, you're absolutely right. There is so much beautiful, good work happening among churches. And, and I think of those just gentle, kind, faithful, hardworking shepherds, 
men and women that are leading the church and shepherding God's flock and being faithful to their families and being kind and listening and learning um, and sacrificing. And they're never going to make headline news in the same way. You know, I was thinking about when I when I went to Iraq, my mom was like, you can't go there because it's dangerous. Because all you ever see on the news about Iraq is, right. you know, the violence. And, and you don't see that, like, actually, people are living their lives there. They love picnics in Iraq, harvest season, their holidays, their celebrations, the neighborly love that they should. I mean, you don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. You only see the bad news. Such a and, great and comparison. I just want to kind of push against this narrative a little bit that the church is somehow a pariah in culture, that it's it's bad for culture. Yes, absolutely. Like spiritual abuse is a really, really powerful, evil, vile thing that needs to be held into account. But so many incredible ministries, education programs, um, food, food and feeding programs, um, AA meetings, grief share. I mean, so many awesome things are happening within the institution of the church and we've got to celebrate those those things. Um, and I just think, man, the truth is the truth is what sets you free. And telling the truth means we need to tell the whole truth. So for mm-hmm. a long time, the truth the church only wanted to say the good things it was doing. It's really good that we're exposing some of the bad things so we can hold it into account. But let's not let the pendulum swing too far to this way. Let's tell the whole truth about what's going on in the church. Yes there are problems. There are things we need to learn, sin we need to root out, abuse we need to eradicate. But there's also some just really, really incredible character development and service and and mentoring and family and community that's happening within the church, even in this country, much less around the world. And, And we've got to tell that story too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that example. I mean, cause the church is like, I mean, I think there's something like 300,000 churches in the United States. So that's a lot to base uh, all opinion on, you know, the leader of a couple of them. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And those, 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 the failures are always going to get the headlines. You know what I mean? Um, And, and again, there's some, there's something really good about that, about us knowing and, and exposing those things. But right now it just feels like, man, rage is the virtue. We're all like, we're all happening to you right now. And it's like, the more angry you feel, the more virtuous you feel in some ways. And there's yeah, a I can see that. place for really righteous indignation. There is a place for that. It's important I actually write about it in the book, but there's also a place for joy and a place for peace and, and a, a place for thankfulness. And, and Rachel, my sister was really good about that. Like the Eshet Heil woman of valor that she tried to kind of normalize where, Hey, let's celebrate when we do good things. Let's celebrate when we show bravery and courage and service and do hard things for one another. Let's recognize it and celebrate it together. And um, I'm, yeah, it's the bride of Christ. She's not perfect, but she's also Christ's bride. Mm-hmm. So let's just be tender with her. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we, we, you got to be both. You got to be tender. You got to be honest. It's just, it has to be both. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. Before you go, though, I want to ask you um, what you're reading or if you have any book recommendations um, or podcasts that you're listening to. I love to get these recommendations from people. Yeah. 
Well, I just read The History of Sunday by Justo Gonzalez, and I was really interested. I think one thing, we're talking about the church, it's like, you know, the church for a long time has done a few things really well. They have gathered together to sing, pray, study the word, and share bread, food together, share a meal, and serve the marginalized. That's what they've done really well for 2,000 years. And this book kind of covers kind of how Christians have gathered together on a weekly basis for years. Justo Gonzalez is just one of my favorite church historians. Um, He writes in a way that's readable, but super informative. So he's like academic writer that is good for people that have short attention spans like me. Um, um, That's been really good. Uh, Podcasts that I'm listening to. um, I love The Holy Post with Bill Vischer and Sky Jatani and um, Christian and Caitlin, like the, I, I just love hearing their take on kind of what's happening in evangelicalism and, mm-hmm. you know, how we might ought to respond. And um, so uh, that that's a, a podcast that I listen to pretty regularly. And um, of course, love Kate Bowler, everything happens. Oh, yeah. She, been, I think, a good leader in terms of speaking honestly about pain. And yeah. and now I'm listening to your podcast. Oh, I'm really? Yeah. <laughs> love, well, really your important work about, you know, yeah, finding that, that balance between mothering and creative work and mm-hmm. being faithful to the Lord and tending to your own spiritual needs. So um, Emily Freeman, The Next Right Thing, I've been listening to that. I've been enjoying that a lot. So she's great. She's like a like a bomb, like you listen to her voice and you're just like, <sighs> I know there is something about her voice and I'm like, I'm going to put this on right before I go to sleep. So calming. <laughs> well, um, like dreaming, you know? Um, yeah. Um, and one other book I want to mention, I just got the book, uh, this year flesh by Cole Arthur Riley. She, she's the person behind black liturgies and, um, man talk about some exquisite writing. Um, oh, wow. so I'll give her a plug too. I've just started it. It just came in the mail. Yes. I love getting those recommendations. Like my favorite part of the podcast. Um, So where can people get your book when it, well, they can probably pre-order now. Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's um, you can pre-order it in most places where you can buy um, books and um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I I don't know. I've kind of stayed off of Twitter a little bit. I don't know. You have to get (laughs) It's, like it's an interesting place. <laughs> it's super intense. I think I tweeted one time something like, I don't really enjoy word or like, I'm not doing word all. I don't know. What's the big hype? And it was like, the vultures came out. It's like, don't, you know, I they're just, I'm scared not to talk about Wordle it. at all. So I don't even, I just see it. And I'm like, that looks like a dumb game. I'm not even, I have no interest. <laughs> Well, Sarah Bessie convinced me to do it. And it, 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 it I, I actually do love Wordle, but there's some things I've learned. <laughs> tweet about like don't tweet about deconstruction like don't tweet about wordle but it yeah. so i am on twitter some but i'm on instagram too amanda held opelt um so um yeah i'd love to just i love meeting people that are walking through grief and walking through kind of rethinking their faith after a disorienting life event and love to hear people's stories so um find me there and share what you're going through and i'd love to love to connect so All right. Thank you so much, Amanda. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? 
Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.